0: So I wanted to follow up a little bit from some of what uh, Richard talked about last week. With the marvels of modern technology, I went to Dharma Seed and I was able to download the talk from last week and listen to it some. (laughs) Which is very interesting and for those who don't know, our talks are recorded and posted on the web uh, fairly quickly, sometimes within a day or two. many of the talks from this morning gathering are available to be heard again. In fact, almost all of them are. And so I know that he talked the second part of the morning on the theme of working in the schools and particularly working in inner-city schools, especially in Oakland, and teaching mindfulness and... uh, related uh, skills in the context of public schools. And I wanted to uh, generalize that theme a little bit more and talk about uh, service to others as a path of practice. Helping others as (laughs) for many of us a major part of our lives and how we understand spiritual practice. How we understand Uh, in part, what we're doing here when we meditate, that it may be linked for many of us with how we relate to others, how we, in a sense, um, develop qualities and work through, we might call them, difficulties or challenges or obstacles. We develop qualities that make helping others Flow better and we work through some of the challenges and we can in a sense um, for many of us see our lives a little m- in a little more focused way as a path of service And we may want to use other language some of us may want to s- call it a path of action or a path of transformation and some of us may focus more on helping people in need, helping people who are, in a more obvious way, suffering. Some of us may focus on questions of policy and institutional change, institutional transformation, knowing that the causes of suffering and freedom are both individual and collective or institutional. And so shifting institutions can make a huge difference, even when we're not necessarily directly in contact with immediate suffering. You know? Um, witness the health care. Shall I say discussion? <laughs> 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 or yes, yeah, that's I'm not going to so much focus on that area this morning, but uh, but knowing that um, um, shifts in the way that healthcare is offered or structured institutionally can make a huge difference in people's lives. I think we all know that. that, that, And so some of us, our work of service may be more in the realm of uh, institutional or um, structural change. And some of us, it may be a life of service that is less obviously falling under even the category of service, but I think it's helpful to to look at that, that our service may be to help people maybe in a more um, local way. It could be to whatever, be a leader in the PTA, or to uh, help set up a local school, or it could be to teach yoga and to help people become more healthy have a different relationship to their bodies. It could be psychotherapy and so forth. I think all of these can be understood as service when we we look at that in a broad way. Sylvia and I taught a retreat together with uh, also with three rabbis uh, called Jewish Mindfulness at the end of June here at Spirit Rock. And I remember in one of, uh, I think, Sylvia's last talk, she referred to Viktor Frankl. Some of you have read his book on his experience of the concentration camps called Man's Search for Meaning, a very powerful book written right after the war, which has stayed a bestseller. And in that book, he talks about how um, a sense of connection and helping others, in his observation, when that was present among the prisoners at concentration camps, when they had a a lived sense of the meaningfulness of helping others, right there in that very uh, awful situation, they tended to survive more. Not universally, of of course, but They tended, that was his observation, that sense of, uh, the lived sense of connection, service, and helping others was so basic to human life. It gave tremendous level of meaning. So how do we see our lives as following this path of service? Uh, In many ways, There's um, creative work to be done to help us to see our lives in the world serving others as practice. In some ways the traditional Buddhist paths have been a little more designed for monks and nuns and a little more focused on individual practice so that we actually need to uh, be creative and find ways to make this more uh, uh, outer path in a sense uh, a path of service. So, what does that path look like? What are some of the challenges of the path, and what are some of the qualities developed on that path? I want to focus on that this morning. Leave some time for discussion, and I'll see if it need, if it merits continuation uh, next time. Of course, it's a vast topic, so of course it merits it. Sorry, didn't mean to insult you, path of service. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but we'll, we'll see we'll see where we are. Um, so one way that for me is helpful as a starting point to think about a path of service that really, I think indicates some of the um, qualities that make it a little bit different than traditional paths is that it's a path which in a sense, integrates our inner practice with our outer practice our sense of meditation or other kinds of inner practices, things that we do you know, more in silence or on our own or in a, a setting where we're pri- primarily doing inner practice, how does that get connected with um, developing a very live sense of practice when we're out in the world or when we're working with other people or when we're serving? How do we do that? It's not, always, it's not always obvious. It's not always obvious how to connect meditation to what comes up, let's say, if you're working as a therapist or what comes up if you're working with the homeless or what comes up if you're working on um, educational policy. For example, maybe working in an office doing strategic planning and so forth. How do, you, how do we connect our practice with that more outer work. And that's, I think, where some of the creative work needs to be done. The starting point is just seeing that there is such a connection, that we can make that connection between um, inner and outer work. I think when we do that, we avoid two pitfalls of Buddhist practice on the one hand and of service work on the other. I think it's quite common for Buddhist practice to be primarily about inner practice as it's interpreted in this culture. So sometimes it can be, and I think there, there are cycles to be sure. Uh, but, so for myself I know, coming from a more, uh, before I started meditation, I was probably more of, uh, my self-identity was more of an activist, you know, coming, or someone who was socially, politically active, and um, when I started meditating, you know, and, uh, uh, and doing, getting very involved with meditation, some of my activist friends thought I was what? Um, well, <laughs> they, they might have thought that I was somehow going off the deep end or getting confused or uh, being self-indulgent or something like that. And, um, but it was a cycle because it was necessary, I know for me, to get further involved with that before uh, I would kind of come back to the more social dimension, you know, and sometimes the cycles can, can take a while. So recognizing that there are cycles when it's more important to give attention to, as it were, our inner lives, and other times when it's necessary to give more attention to our our work, our service, and so forth, um, still, there, t- there are tendencies sometimes with Buddhist meditation to never complete that cycle. Sometimes to have Buddhist meditation be more inner, something to be done for one's own private peace. You know, And I think that's especially sometimes apparent with friends from um, other countries. I know one friend Sulak Sivaraksha from Thailand, who's a leader in in what's called engaged Buddhism in Thailand, he looks at America where he often visits and says, I think there's a danger of Buddhism becoming uh, middle-class escapism. That's what he says, you know, and um, and I find hearing his voice helpful to have that kind of perspective. So it can, it can be like that. There's very interesting uh, article by uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's an American monk, he's been a monk for probably 30 years, who's one of the, he's he's probably the the major translator of our time of the discourses of the Buddha. And if you go in the library and see the thick tomes that probably some of you have looked at, uh, you know, published by wisdom, he's the translator. He's given basically very excellent new translations. And he's a scholar of Buddhism, he's a monk. I thought of him for many years as quite conservative. He has, for whatever reason, been very animated to connect Buddhist practice with service. And in fact, has started a whole organization for Buddhist-based humanitarian relief. He wrote an article, which is available on the web, called a challenge to Buddhists. I'm not assuming that everyone here calls himself or herself a Buddhist, so just, but this is, this is what he, he said. He said, um, and he was critical of these tendencies to um, have one's practice bec- become more self-centered, ironically, because of course the aim of practice is to transform self-centeredness, and there, yet there are ways that we can sometimes use our practice in a self-centered way, you know, or do you know, are you following me? Mm -hmm. And so this is what he said in this essay, which was published in the magazine Buddha Dharma. It seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering, that there is suffering, largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles as the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of over-satiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, or with about a bow to Buddhist theory as bondage to the round of rebirths. <laughs> Too often I feel our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population." So quite a, a strong uh, indication, I think, of one um, tendency that's sometimes there. Um, that really doesn't quite make that connection between inner practice and outer practice. And the, on the other side, we would have, I think, uh, almost like a parallel distortion where, where service becomes a matter of somehow helping the unfortunate others. And I'm just a helper, and I'm a little bit, um, you know, on another level. Or at the, at, the be- at the best, really, I'm just working, but I'm not really looking. I'm not using this work as a basis for inner work. I just help others and could be very beautiful, maybe not necessarily with a sense of superiority, but but without a sense of inner practice, um, a lot of service goes on without people necessarily thinking of, are there things that I can learn in an inner basis? You know, I'm not saying that, of course, that that's universal, but it's a tendency at times. Uh, the a friend of mine named Santi Caro, who's an American, who's been developing a community in Wisconsin, in rural Wisconsin, and, and who for about uh, 20 years was a monk in Thailand, and he he said that that uh, there's a very um, powerful essay in which he talked about how those two tendencies, in a way, come from misreadings of the first noble truth, which is the truth of suffering. And he says that the Buddha said, all that the Buddha said was, there is suffering. He didn't say, transform your suffering. He He didn't say, the first truth is not, the first truth is not, I suffer. He said, the first truth is, there is suffering. You know, and he said, and so he said that realizing this helps us avoid those two tendencies. On the one hand, thinking that it's all about my suffering and not about others' suffering. All the Buddha said was there is suffering. Suffering needs to be transformed. So there is that room for compassion and being drawn to help the suffering of others. And he also said that the Buddha said only there is suffering and not, other people are suffering <laughs> you know that in other words that the suffering has to mean also my suffering not just others and so the the two distortions are either not to look at the vast suffering of others or to think that I'm helping others and not to look at my suffering Two uh, tendencies quite common and so the the um, path I think the path of service we try to find ways to connect inner practice with our work, our service as practice. One way to uh, also start is by looking at the challenges of that. You know, what are the challenges of taking service as practice? When we are, let's say, Working with the homeless, or teaching, or being a psychotherapist, or um, working on policy issues, or uh, teaching uh, yoga, or um, helping with uh, community issues, or or whatever we take to be our path of service, doing volunteer work. Um, what are the issues that come up that that make that that essentially Lead us to feeling stuck when we're doing that kind of work. Anyone want to volunteer? Just uh, what that might be, Kelly, and and I'll repeat them for the sake, I guess, for the sake of the uh, recording. Yeah.
1: Just being overwhelmed, so you have to like kind of step back and create that separation. Yeah,
0: it could be over overwhelmed by what the level of suffering, perhaps. You know, it could be connected with uh, what we call burnout, right? Very, very major issue right in a life of service is just somehow getting out of balance so we're we're burned out right overwhelmed in some way yeah what what are other and so you could see how you know we could ask, start asking the question how can service as a path of practice address that issue not easy right please pity yeah. pity. pity for
1: thinking, you know when you look the tendency could be that you would i was in cambodia and vietnam oh, these poor people, and when you spend any time, you realize they may be better off than I am because they have a different... But the original tendency was to... um, uh, It's kind of a disconnect and judgment about
0: their life. So it could be a sense of pity related to a sense of superiority. I'm the helper. My life is together. These people need help. So for the certain... Uh, What? Uh, Fixation.
2: Disconnection.
0: Yeah, disconnection also. Maybe uh, um, pity, not the same as compassion. Right. right? Mm -hmm. So please,
2: yeah. I think the tension between feeling um, deeply connected sometimes without quite knowing it. Yeah. And or disconnected. I think there's a tension between that I'm just like them or I'm not at all like them. Yeah.
0: yeah and yeah so sometimes to yeah to, that they're almost like sometimes these what extremes that we go to one where we feel um, disconnected <laughs> maybe that sense of superiority uh, and we're we're helping we may even think that oh I'm doing such a great job but but in actuality we may be helping in significant ways but the inner feeling may be that of superiority and then on the other extreme right a sense of um, maybe losing the boundaries, and so, is that what you were pointing to? Losing the boundaries in a sense, merging, or or um, not seeing how I am different in a way which may what affect the quality of the service. So it can be an issue. That's a little more subtle issue. We'd probably have to tease out to make clearer. But I think probably many of us know can take that as shorthand. Maybe one or two more, please. Yeah.
1: Well, um. Attachment to outcomes of your efforts yeah. in any of those situations. Yeah, big one. Um, <laughs>
0: attachment to getting the results that I want. <laughs> very, very uh, major. Um, big, uh, big issue, you know, and, and something that uh, can be very hard if we don't have some kind of inner practice, very hard to deal with.
1: And it kind of relates to that sort of a feeling of self-righteousness that, you know, not not towards the people you're trying to help, but towards other people involved who might have a different way of looking at it than you do. And be, you know, and trying to be very clear about, you know, advancing what's true as opposed to maybe what might further your particular goal.
0: Yeah. So um, so, so I think it sounds like a, maybe a few pieces there, but one of them... A sense of self-righteousness. Um, the technical term is being a goody-goody. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and uh, but but clearly, uh, sort of can, in other words, using our service maybe to, in one sense we could say to augment the ego or augment self-image in some way. Very. You know, and so I think we're beginning to see how naming these challenges as part of a path of service, you know, in that understand that broad sense, can be very helpful. I think there were. Let me just take the how many. Let me just take the hands that are actually up. There are four, four hands up, and I'll limit it at that. Yeah, please.
1: Um, <clears throat> not knowing what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, Maybe seeing only one's own limitations, maybe financial limitations, um, and a sense of inadequacy and not knowing where to fit in or what to do.
0: Yeah, so uh, just to repeat, the sense of, could be a sense of confusion about what to do uh, for a number of different reasons, uh, perhaps some limitations of capacity, of money, and so forth. And how do I, how can I really be of service? Yeah. Thank you. Please.
1: Almost the flip side of that, sort of taking on too much responsibility, mm-hmm. and sort of not feeling a, you know, feeling a burden to Mm -hmm. make a
0: shift. Feeling a burden to to a good, again it could be being attached to outcomes, but that sense of taking on too much. Mm -hmm. uh, Burden, feeling, I've heard many times from people um, in certain service kinds of work, people feel they just have to continue working all the time. Um, This is what Thomas Merton said about this tendency in 1960 There is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs, overwork. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many people, to want to help everyone and everything, is to succumb to violence. This frenzy kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful." Rather strong statement. Yeah. I think there were two more, just noting, please. Yeah. Uh, lack of institutional support yeah. in the workplace or just in a larger culture. Yeah, lack of institutional support. Uh, what might that mean, like an example? Um,
1: it's not feeling that people are understanding your intentions or
0: you're on the same page with you either in the workplace. Mm-hmm. So maybe feeling one's own, like I'm trying to do a project within, let's say, uh, a clinic where I'm, let's say, I have this great project to have more outreach to a certain population and I just don't get any support for it, financial, emotional, logistical, et cetera. And I have this great project and it, by that fact of lack of support, I tend to take on too much, et cetera. Something like that. Yeah. So I think there was one more. Uh, please.
1: Yeah. My best friend is an activist. I think it's her one of her m- biggest life passions. She works um, against corrupt corruption in, in unions, particularly the union that, that she's mm. part of with her job. And, uh, well, I don't know how this fits in with the other things. It seems more selfish on my part, but I am always struck by how um, she's, she tends to be a very ethical person and. Uh, um, She's working against corporate power, and she gets squashed and mauled and slandered in, in really violent ways. It's, it's hard for
0: me to see. It's, it's very repetitive. Yeah, so just the, if I could um, summarize, Sue, it's something like the challenge of just the forces arrayed against one with certain types of efforts. Is that a fair way that, you know, that there could be these all sorts of forces which come into play, particularly if one is doing things which go into the field of power relationships, right? All sorts of things could happen. So if that is sufficient indication of the challenges of the path of service that some of you say, okay, I'll take middle-class escapism, <laughs> okay. I can deal with guilt, but that path of service, the, oh, you know, there was... Just, uh, Maybe we should name the problems after we've already been inspired by the path a little bit more but um, but there those are a lot and of course and but what's interesting is you can see I think in naming those we could see how all of those can to some extent to a significant extent be addressed by what we could call the resources of spiritual practice. in other words, we can look at questions of overwork and as it were, develop the factor of wisdom, right? You can say, let me develop my discernment to what's a good amount, where I can use mindfulness when I'm meditating and notice, do, is there self-image connected with my overwork? Do I have a certain sense of if I didn't do this, I wouldn't be adequate, and you know, I want to be seen as the great person who works all the time, and it could be self-image. You know, same thing with issues of self-righteousness or superiority, pity. We can track that in our minds because it's not just behavior. There are also our mind states, emotional states, that we can track when we are meditating. And we can also track on the spot, you know, let's say in the workplace or in the uh, the service place. We can... um, again, maybe use the factor of wisdom to see if I'm trying to take on something without adequate support and try to somehow get allies or, or work in a certain way. Not, not, it's not to say that the resources of spiritual practice are going to resolve everything, of course not, but I think you can begin to see how when we bring those resources to those challenges, there are... Um, it becomes more of a path, and a path of practice doesn't mean it's easy, but it means that it. I think what a sense of practice most basically means is that it becomes workable, and that we can share it with others, with our community. If I had to simplify, what does a path of practice mean? It means that uh, we, uh, the whole situation, is workable. We have resources, and we have fellow, as it were, travelers on the path that we can share notes with. We're in a community. We can say, well, how did you deal with tending to overschedule? You know, big issue in our, most of our lives, right? Being too busy for, for many of us. Um, so we can share notes. We can be part of a community. We can take this not as um, these issues not as dire threats, but we can take them as challenges knowing that practice is about ups and downs and challenges. So it's not so much that we have to uh, see these as curses. We see, we see them all as workable. I think I wanted to um, finish for now just by uh, naming very, very briefly so, some of the qualities, some of the more positive qualities which develop. Because I think there, we could talk about a path of practice involving service as developing, making use of many of the central qualities of our meditation practice, mindfulness, loving-kindness, wisdom, patience and so forth, uh, equanimity and so forth. I want to just name briefly three qualities and I think and I'll I'll do it pretty briefly and I'm sensing I will return to this next week <laughs> because I'm about a quarter of the way through my notes. <laughs> in fact, I haven't been looking too much at my notes. <laughs> okay. um, but, um, and so uh, one quality that's very central, that I'll just be brief about, very central for I think all practice, but particularly for a path of service is the quality of intention and working with clarity of intention. And I think this relates to what I talked about briefly right at the beginning of the sitting at 9 o'clock of just suggesting that we could connect with two senses of intention, one related to deeper aspiration and one related to the intention in the moment for a particular activity. And so in a life of service Staying connected with our deeper aspiration, let's say, to help others or to help others awaken or to transform suffering is very, very crucial. One reason for burnout is that all the details of life sort of bury our deeper intention. It can happen in life generally, right? We get overwhelmed by details or by being busy or being distracted and we lose that deep core of wanting to be free or wanting to respond to suffering or the sense of mystery and just things just become more ordinary and kind of grumpy Mm -hmm. and and so staying in touch with intention or doing that which brings us in touch with deeper intention for me uh, being on retreat is very very crucial having doesn't have to be retreat per se but some period of silence, renewal, getting away from the ordinary routine, for me, almost invariably, brings me back to deeper intention. It kind of brings that out. So how do we stay in touch with that deeper intention? And to what extent is the deeper intention itself involved with helping others? To what extent is service itself part of our deeper aspiration? And I'm thinking about In particularly in Mahayana tradition, there's the notion of bodhicitta, B-O-D-H-I-C-I-T-T-A, which bodhi is the same root for Buddha, means more or less awakened mind. And citta, or citta is is really what we, um, is the word for mind and heart, sort of the mental emotional states. So this bodhicitta is sometimes translated as the mind of awakening. And it's particularly understood as the aspiration to awaken for others in Mahayana tradition and to, to, to uh, manifest for others. And so really giving that attention to intention is very central for a life of service. And that's why I think in, a, in one's meditation, coming back to that can be very crucial. Coming back to it maybe a few times a day and uh, actually doing practices which can strengthen that sense of aspiration can be very, very helpful. Um, to be in touch with one's aspiration as much as possible. And sometimes it can feel a little bit forced or phony or not quite fully authentic. And I think that's okay. We, if, As long as it's somewhat authentic, it can get stronger. So in a sense, the, I was thinking that these three qualities I'm gonna talk about, I'm just gonna talk about uh, intention and generosity and compassion, they're in a way ways to address what are taken to be the three core problems of our minds. Namely, um, greed, hatred, and delusion. And so in, in a sense, intention, clarity of intention works with delusion. We could say that generosity works with greed or the desire to the self-centered quality. I think from time to time I talk about the class that Diana Winston and I offered uh, about uh, eight or nine years ago, I think it was about nine years ago, in the East Bay. We offered a class called Greed Management. (laughs) Very few people signed up.
2: (laughs) You know,
0: I think, I think we had five, five people in the class. We had two teachers. <laughs> so, but, you know, uh, we, weren't, we weren't in it for the numbers. And, and um, it was actually very, very illuminating because got, we got to really look very carefully at greed. And I got to see greed more clearly because we just focused on greed for five weeks. And then at the, for the final, we had kind of a final exam. Which was uh, at that time the Bed, Bath, and Beyond store was opening in El Cerrito, and I and I think none of the class had ever been to a Bed, Bath, and Beyond store. You know now it's common experience. And and um, and so the last class we uh, we meditated, and then we were asked we asked everyone, including ourselves, to do 30 minutes of walking meditation. In, be, in bed, death, and beyond, <laughs> and then to debrief afterwards, and it was a pretty intense experience kind of like you're doing walking meditation and the mind goes sort of like, re- reaches out the hand as if to grab something, or you know, for me the experience was, I had never been there, I, there were all sorts of things I never knew existed that I uh, could see how it would really be important for me to have them. <laughs> and. Um, and so, but I got to see more clearly, we got to see more clearly in this, that, that greed had these, when we looked at greed carefully, we found greed had these aspects, it had self-centeredness, it had, uh, you know, not really being attentive to others' interests or needs, it had very short-term, you Now, when, as I'm saying this, you might think, Wall Street, <laughs> perhaps, or certain, uh, well, I won't say more. Um, uh, short term thinking lack of attention to consequences that's what we found was characteristic of greed at the very personal level and so when we live a life of service we transform greed and work on generosity but what comes up as we're practicing are all the qualities of self-centeredness of self-image, and so forth. So we take generosity as an intention, but on the way we see all these things. So it can be very powerful. And I think I'm going to maybe come back more to that next time. But I just want to name that. You know, as, just as clarity of intention works through delusion in a way, generosity, and developing generosity of giving energy, time, sometimes money, to others, Work can work through um, self-centeredness, greed, um, and so forth. And lastly, I wanted to say that compassion can work through uh, the lack of love. You know, or in, in the typical language would be called hatred or um, aversion towards others. And a path of service would have has as its central for most sense of path of service, we would, we would have something like the development of love and compassion also as very, 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 very central to that path. And again, then we would look to see, to what extent am I developing genuine compassion? To what extent is there pity or a sense of superiority? I think I'm the compassionate one, but in actuality there may be superiority. And so we can do the inner practices to develop compassion and then we can try to bring those out into our service and see what gets in the way. It becomes a path of practice, you know. To what extent is there compassion? To what extent am I helping others and really actually not being so compassionate, thinking, you know, and it could be because I'm overwhelmed or too busy, you know, and so forth. So. The main thing, I think, with all of this is that we have this interplay of inner and outer work that I think creates this beautiful uh, creative cauldron where transformation can occur. And I think most basically it's what the world really deeply needs now. If I can kind of finish with this thought that I think the world deeply needs people who are prepared to offer service in their own ways and connect it with inner work to, um, to be able to um, be helping in various ways, but to have that inner check that lets us uh, look at the roots of ways that we don't serve so well, that looks at the ways in which we, we may be self-centered or unwise or or uh, not so compassionate and it becomes a whole path um, let me see I'll, I'll end with another quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi, you know, in the same essay he said, in each historical period the dharma or the teachings of liberation, find new means to unfold to potentials in ways precisely linked to that era's distinctive historical conditions. I believe that our own era provides the appropriate historical stage for the truth of the Dharma to bend back upon the world and engage human suffering at multiple levels. Let's just sit for 30 seconds for a minute. So Marty, we can keep it, keep it going, okay, we can keep it going for the discussion, I think. Okay. Um, so we have just a little bit of time. I talked a little bit longer, although I guess in a sense we had discussion in the middle. That maybe counts. <laughs> so any, any thoughts or questions, please? Yeah.
2: How do you see the, um, the path of art as service?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. How do, how would we see the path of R to surface? Could I ask you to respond to your own question? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, I'm
0: and maybe we can use, does this microphone work? Let's see, it, can, it should have a button that turns it on. Okay. Sometimes on the bottom, is there? No microphone. I don't, uh, anyway, to yeah.
2: continue, I, uh, I just, um, for years I was a counselor with a <clears throat> mentally ill, drug addicted, and I felt yeah. like you know, I was doing service. But my, one of my real loves is art. And yeah. so I stopped, I did, you know, got the burnout place, to the burnout place for yeah. reasons. And so now I feel like I'm doing my art, but I'm not, um, I don't feel like I'm like serving in the way that I did. So it's kind of like,
0: how do you... How, how to keep that sense? Well, it's a great question because I'm trying to give a broad sense of service that doesn't limit it to, as it were, conventional notions of like being on the front lines. And I think a lot of it has so much to do with motivation and intention. That, for example, when you're doing art, you could have, as part of your motivation, the sense that you're not just doing this for yourself, but you're wanting something, let's say some energy to come through you that might be shared with others at some point.
2: Well, I mean, I do my art to, to uh, spread love and beauty to the world, but okay. I- is, it en- is it enough?
0: Um, I think uh, if you're what it may require is that you actually stay with that motivation, maybe a little more and a little more regularly. Um, Yeah, and from our conventional social view, um, that's not sometimes seen as service. Of course, we know that art is incredible service, right? Music, art, the sense of beauty, creating beauty and so forth. So it may be that it's helpful to focus on that intention, like before you're... working as an artist, like in the morning or whenever. You know, almost like it's a meditation session. Let me be here and be with my aspiration. And that may, um, that may lead to a, more of a sense of, of that connection, because it sounds like your motivation is right there. You know, I'm thinking also of someone like Thomas Merton, who actually hardly left the monastery, but wrote books that helped others tremendously. You know, and there are people like that who may not even not not even have direct interpersonal contact and be offering a great service. So I think some of it has to do with uh, maybe looking a little more carefully and working with your own motivation. It's just
2: so different than the face-to-face. It's different, yeah. Yeah, passing of energy to a person it's
0: yeah it's a different kind mm-hmm. and maybe maybe you may want to see well what's the balance that mm-hmm. that I need maybe you know to to in terms of those forms <coughs> maybe a little teaching of art or something I don't know yeah please or some kind of other yeah or other maybe some other service would would uh, help to feel that but I think probably if you ask most of us they would say oh great service tremendous service I'm not going to do a vote. <laughs> okay, please.
1: Yeah, I'm interested in that idea of that someone who said that, um, that about the second noble truth, you know, life is suffering and um, suffering is caused by attachment to desire. Well, yeah. if that's the second noble truth, then isn't the Buddha talking about individuals as opposed to not talking about the suffering of, like, the whole world? Because, you know, some suffering poverty. You know, that's not caused by attachment to desire. You know? At least that's the way I see it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it seems like what he's talking about is more of an individual thing.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah, I think there, there are a few levels to look at that on. I mean, one of them, the, the point that I was making was not so much ab- about individual versus collective, but about whether there would be a focus on me versus you. And what I was saying was that focusing on suffering uh, doesn't mean that I only focus on my suffering. It may be that I... Now, I think um, I tend to agree with santi Caro, whom I quoted, and I think it would not... I think there'd be others who would disagree with me, to be honest. But, I, so I think there's... Um, and that also has to do with how we want to interpret um, suffering and the roots of causes in our time. You know, I certainly would want to look at the uh, individual and collective roots of suffering you know, in, in our time to see how institutions or cultural views like racism, for example, can cause tremendous suffering. I think the... the I think the Buddhist teachings are wide enough to include include that.
1: I guess I was saying that the converse of that, not that obviously suff- there's yeah. suffering in the world other than personal suffering, but that I think the teachings are wide enough to also include personal suffering. Yeah. Unlike sort of what he's saying in that, pa- I mean, he's what he may be saying in that paper, I, I think it very much does include a person's own work on themselves. Oh,
0: yeah. Maybe maybe I wasn't so clear because...
1: Well, not you so much as what his...
0: <coughs> he Well, I think he was saying that if we only focus on personal suffering that could be distorted he wasn't say, saying don't focus on personal suffering he was saying that if i only focus on personal suffering and not on the suffering of my neighbor or someone half a world away then i will then he was saying that that's not that's his interpretation of the teach the teaching is about suffering in general which includes my suffering but includes other suffering as well. So he's, I think he's giving more of a social reading of the first truth. Um, And some would not do that, you know, to be quite honest about it. Some would say he he is talking about personal suffering. Oh, exclusively, yeah. Um, But um, I think the emphasis here is, you know, in terms of this path of service, is that we can actually, and I think this comes out more clearly when we talk about compassion or when we talk about um, helping others, that that this path of service would really include both, as it were, looking at my suffering and looking at the suffering of others and seeing how helping others can be a path in which I also transform my own suffering. That's what makes it a path. That it's something that I help others, let's say as a therapist or something, or as a a teacher. And I use that activity partly to help, but also to see what comes up with me. To what extent do I get involved with conflicts with my fellow teachers? You know, what are the roots of that? How can I use everything that comes up as, as, as chances for learning? You know, and, and a lot of that's going to be my suffering. I suffer when I have conflicts with fellow teachers. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night and said, did I really say that? <laughs> and so forth. So does that make some sense? So so it's. Uh, I think that's what's really unique about the sense of path of service and combining inner and outer practice. How many would like to continue? <laughs> no, we don't have to. How many would... How many would like to move on? Okay. <laughs> move on from the move on from the past. Um, how, sincerely, how, I'm, I'm really looking for sincerity here, not just make, How many would, would like to continue this next week? Some next week, okay? Um, well, I'll I'll try to uh, do so in a way which includes those who didn't raise their hands. <laughs> in some way to um, kind of have it not just be narrowly in service, but be fairly broad. So it looks at these issues, a lot of which are very much issues just of how we are with family or other situations. So let's just sit to close for 30 seconds, a minute. And letting be present for yourself, any intentions uh, which come out of the morning. This return to focus on intentions at the end of our time together through what we call the dedication of merit, the traditional term. We remember that we meet together and practice not just for ourselves but also for others and we offer the fruits of the morning out beyond these walls into the world for the benefit and healing and, ultimately, freedom of all beings. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and
2: Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.